so much. I, I would like to talk about many things probably in, in, in my lectures, cover completely different topics and it wasn't easy to combine them under a certain common topic but probably uh, the common theme in completely different 
areas that I would cover would be that I will talk about biologically inspired materials. And in particular, interesting things, I hope interesting things, uh, that happen when chemistry takes some lessons from biology, combines this with optics, surface nanoscience, and does something um, more interesting maybe than each of these sciences could do, could do alone. Uh, overall approach uh, that I have is, is really more of a dreamer kind of approach in a sense that I uh, really look at this from the point of view of dreaming of something in materials that doesn't exist yet. And in this way, whether can we look at things and imagine new technologies? Imagine, they're not yet there. But maybe even uh, materials, devices, maybe whole buildings with a range of features that we want to have. And these features may include, and the list would be long, but you can add as many as you want to that list. Maybe they adapt to the environment. They may harvest energy. They may mechanically reconfigure if we want that. And some of these aspects I will cover in different lectures uh, that I will give. Collect and deliver water. Collect light. Self-heal. Change color. A lot of things with color. Self-clean and resist <coughs> fouling of different kind. And again, one can add more things to this list. And the way um, my group and certainly uh, a big institute that now exists at Harvard, the VC Institute for Bio-Inspired Engineering, the way we look at that is we are trying to think about um, as chemists, as biologists, as uh, trying to think how we can build similar to the way organisms do. So the way to think about it is to think whether we can combine principles of self-assembly, think about materials that can be built from bottom up rather than from top down, and also adding features of adaptability, features of reconfigurability. And if one wants to do that, um, can we then consider as an approach not only look at biological examples that teach us something, or at least to understand something about them, but combine some of these principles, we don't know much, but a little bit of knowledge can be then um, combined uh, with, uh, with existing technologies. But the importance of the, what happens at the nanoscale in biology, and maybe then it will give us the ability to make materials adaptive. So overall, as I mentioned, uh, there is a really a combination of fields. I am a physical chemist by training, but I truly believe that much more can be done if there is a merger between the sciences. And, and in particular, um, between nanotechnology, biology, and physical sciences. And yet another feature that I want to highlight now, before we go to specific projects that I want to cover, is um, a feature of biological world that is a little underappreciated these days, but I really want to emphasize, is that many things in biological materials 
many of these materials are multifunctional, which means there's one material design, but that material is capable of performing often even orthogonal functions that require completely different design principles. But nature has the ability to think about trade-offs and improve the materials such that they can perform optical and mechanical function, or mechanical and magnetic function, and so on. So the way I try to think about it is not necessarily to replicate biological, <coughs> interesting bio biological structures. I don't want to make a synthetic <coughs> organism. What I do want to do is rather to extract interesting principles, reduce them to manageable set of parameters, and then reformulate that in different materials, reformulate that in something that we can put together and use it for various applications. And that means that lessons might not be necessarily taken from one organism. I can take different organisms and together they can give an interesting idea and I'll cover many of these examples. Uh, for example, lessons from glass, sponges and sea urchins together gave rise to the way one can build nanostructures of any shape we want. Um, or cilia in our body together with, uh, with ideas uh, from, uh, from octopi to dynamic material. So let's not try to build, focus on one specific thing. Let's take lessons and think how they can be combined together. I do believe that there is a special place now for that, I would call it bio-inspired um, nanoscience or bio-inspired chemistry. If I look at the, just simply on papers published over the years, over the th uh, last 30 years, we all know it's maybe not the, the best part, but there's so many papers are being published now compared to how many papers were published in sciences 30 years ago. Um, but the, m even more interesting, probably, is to see that within these, the papers in nanoscience, broadly defined, uh, grew from about 0.2% to 11% of total scientific publications. And within that one, if we think about papers in via nanosciences, they've grown to 30% of the total papers in nanoscience. So I do believe there is a lot of interesting things that can be done. Uh, my group, uh, more broadly to define uh, what is happening in the group, I have a very large group, um, about 50 people, and doing things in three somewhat broadly defined areas. So one is actually uh, looking at real biological systems and uh, trying to understand uh, the, the principles of their design. And in particular, we do a lot of research in optical structures in nature, in uh, looking at uh, waveguides and lenses. I'll show two examples today, because that part, in fact, has almost no chemistry in it involved, so I'm not going to include it in, in, as a broader topic in my lectures. But then lessons from these biological um, from, from these creatures can be used and, and very big part of, of my 
uh, research is based on trying to use these principles and synthetically reproduce and, and build interesting materials based on what we learn from, from nature. Now, that part is directly related to what we learn here. This is also bio-inspired science, but this is not necessarily directly related to organisms uh, that we uh, study, but it's still inspired by somebody else's work in biology and related to things in dynamic materials in bio-nano interfaces, hierarchical self-assembly, switchable na nanostructures, and we'll talk about these um, in some of my lectures, absolutely. Um, I would like to mention, I hope that uh, by the end of these lectures, I will convince you that not only that research in, in this area is very, very, um, uh, really rewarding, um, so many things can be done, but probably I will hope to convince you that it can help us uh, solve a number of engineering problems and last but not the least, it is actually a lot of fun. Uh, so, I'll, before discussing very specific topics, I want to just mention uh, these uh, optical skeletal systems, biological systems that we study in my group. As I said, not as much chemistry, but just to show the excitement and interesting lessons that one can learn if we look not for something that we all know about biology, but I'm particularly interested in what I would call high-tech lessons in biology, something that biology can tell us about mechanical properties, optical properties, magnetic properties um, that can be used in high-tech applications. So in particular, we have a big program in what I would call skeletons with eyes and this multifunctionality of certain biological organisms that use <coughs> skeletons also for optical function. And uh, just show you a couple of examples. Uh, the, this one is deep sea sponge. Honestly, nothing spongy about it. It's not soft, it's extremely hard. It's made, it makes its, its skeleton out of glass. So entire skeleton is glass and this sponge lives very deep in the ocean, about 1,000 meters deep. And not only that it has amazing skeletal design, and in principle, one can teach entire course in civil or mechanical engineering based on the details of its structure. But it, really interestingly there is that, in addition to this wonderful structure uh, that is kind of similar to what we do when we build our materials. Um, there is a pair of shrimp that always lives inside this sponge symbiotically, cannot leave the house, and how shrimp and why shrimp decides to stay encaged within the sponge. And the reason for that is that this skeleton surrounds itself with a fiber optical network of glass fibers with a performance that is often higher than the performance of optical fibers that we use. 
And these optical fibers provide the way to collect light that comes from bioluminescent bacteria. And this is a really nice way to, to combine uh, optics with mechanics and actually fluidics because there is the way sponges live is by pumping fluids through its cage and in this way to create an extremely interesting materials. Really an illuminated house of the deep and I would uh, probably, if it plays, just show you the complexity of the design of the sponge. So there is perfect square cell lattice but to make it even more reinforced, it's e each beam is the, uh, it has a, just diagonal reinforcement so that it doesn't have shear problem. Each beam is a bundle of beams. It's all glass. And each glass fiber is now fiber reinforced cement of glass fibers. And each of those is laminated glass with a little bit of glue, which is protein, between them and all together, it's really difficult to break this material. Yet another example of this combination and multifunctionality in nature that we are really excited about, and I will mention actually this organism a couple of times in some of my lectures. This is brittle star. This is the closest relative of the starfish. Not everybody knows about brittle stars, but they are pretty much the same in the sense that they have five-fold symmetry of the body, they're just much faster than starfish. And what is interesting is that on top of their skeleton, as part of their skeleton, they form amazing lenses. Uh, these lenses uh, have incredible focusing capability, but even more important is that these guys change their color from black to white, in the biological literature, it was described as an example of biomimicry, which is absolutely not the case, because if this would be the, uh, the case, you would want to be white during the day and black during the night. But they're black during the day, and they're white during the night. And actually, the reason for that is to design this dynamic optical system where these lenses would be covered with pigment during the day when there is too much sunlight so that to optimize the, um, uh, the ability of these lenses to collect light and then intensity of that, uh, the thickness of the pigment layer would depend on the intensity of light pretty much that these guys are capable of wearing sunglasses uh, that change their transparency um, de depending on the intensity of light. And, and again, it's an example of a material that is multifunctional and somehow nature um, optimizes it uh, with some trade-offs for things in this particular case for strength, because it's skeleton, has to be strong, optics and fluidics. Have most examples of other beautiful organisms that see through their bones. This is a really interesting area. And yet another one where all kinds of optical structures are being developed for different reasons, sometimes mechanical, sometimes for attracting um, um, or distracting the um, enemies. But that's all about things where chemistry 
present. I must say chem chemistry is always present, of course. But mostly it's about optics and mechanics and uh, mechanics and uh, magnetic properties. And I will just again list the lectures that I want to give. Today I will talk about um, bi-inspired approaches to crystal design. I'm a physical chemist by training, but specifically I'm actually a crystallographer. Um, I'm not sure how much I will cover today, but I coupled the first lecture with a second one, where from basic principles of bi-inspired crystal design, I'll talk about the ways we can now form inorganic materials. All these flowers here are made of the simplest combination of simplest materials of glass and chalk, and they have, each of them is size of um, uh, tenths of the human hair, but we can make interesting shapes if we understand principles of crystallization and a couple of other things, and it would be in my second talk. In uh, the third lecture, I uh, would like to talk now, coming back to echinoderms, coming back a little bit to starfish, but in a different way, and talking about lessons that we can get from their spines, and in particular from things that is called pedicillaria. There's many of those things, there's an enlargement of pedicillaria that is in constant motion, and how these lessons can help us identify approaches to dynamic materials, how to make things that change their properties um, in response to environment. In the fourth lecture, I would, I would like to talk about uh, wetting phenomena, and in particular, about hydrophobicity, superhydrophobicity, omniphobicity, and slippery surfaces, and, and again looking at what biology does in different cases that are designed for different purposes and therefore structurally they're different or chemically they're different. Um, from there, I would have a, quite a significant emphasis on slippery surfaces and um, would then talk about um, jumped really application and interesting things that one can do with slippery materials. And I will probably emphasize more than anything uh, how surfaces can be built such that they can prevent contamination of biological matter. Whether it's algae, as it's shown here, or anything else, actually, and how one can design omniphobic surface that prevents contamination and adhesion of many things. And with that, the last lecture, come back to butterflies a little bit. We'll certainly come back to these guys and to crystallization, but now crystallization on the colloidal scale. And I'll try to show how many interesting things, again, combining that with ideas of dynamic materials, uh, what can be done in these areas. So with that, let me talk about crystallization. And uh, there is no need to discuss it 
Everybody understands and knows that crystallization, not just because it's near and dear to my heart, but it's in fact um, really important. This process is everywhere, in many fields. Geology, chemistry, physics, you name it. But it's actually quite poorly understood. So the goal of, of um, those who are interested in crystallization is always the same, and the goal is very broad. And this goal would be, can we come, come up with ways to control crystal formation at many levels? To control nucleation, to control growth, to control defects distribution, to control patterning of crystals. And in my approach, or at least what interests me, would be um, to do it based on biological principles, on, and in particular, to think about crystals and in crystals, sh shaping of the crystals, not from top down, not to dig holes in these crystals, but grow them from bottom up. And even more so, to think about the fact that even inorganic crystals, when they're grown um, in biological systems, their growth is controlled by organic molecules. So what is it that we can do if we take uh, these approaches? To narrow it down now to something manageable within a lecture, I'll talk about crystallization that is controlled by self-assembled monolayers. And in particular, out of everything that can be crystallized, I'll choose calcite. And the reason of choosing calcite is that it's one of the most common biominerals, inorganic minerals, that is uh, that evolved in nature and really as a skeletal material. And for those of you who know what calcite is, this is extremely brittle material. It doesn't make sense to design mechanical structures out of brittle material. And the reason that it's a bad choice, in principle, is that if we look at calcite, either geological calcite or calcite that anybody can easily grow in their lab. This is um, calcium carbonate, it's rhombohedral um, unit cell, and it has well-developed de cleavage planes. So the moment you touch it, it begins to crack, and the cracks propagate along these one of four cleavage planes. So somehow that doesn't seem like a good choice. Although calcium is out there in nature, so nature has to deal with ions that are in reasonable concentrations. But something interesting is happening. So instead of these regular calcite rhombohedra, whose facets are one of four facets, because they always cleave along these planes, and therefore it's surface of lowest energy, these are single calcite crystals that are made by nature as part of skeletal elements of different organisms. So sea urchin spine, the entire spine, and some sea urchins would grow spines that are 20 centimeters or longer. The entire spine is a single calcite crystal. But it has this nice architecture. This, um, this is brittle star skeleton that I uh, mentioned before with these lenses on top. The entire thing is one single crystal of calcite. There's a couple of other examples. And somehow this crystal um, is now uh, full of holes, still keeping single crystalline character. 
talking about shell. Uh, shell is supporting the, this lecture series. Actually, mollusk shell, and in particular, prismatic layer, not, not mother and pearl, not the nacreous layer, but prismatic layer of shells is also made of calcite, in some species are made of calcite, and in every prism is a single crystal of calcite. So obviously, nature knows how to control pretty much everything. Location of nucleation, um, particle sizes, shapes, three-dimensional design, crystallographic orientation, everything. So what we want to try, and if we think about bio-inspired crystal engineering, is really generally to use organized organic assemblies, because this is what nature uses to control crystal growth, and using that, have specific objectives on optimizing and tuning different properties of crystal growth. Um, crystallization process in terms of nucleation, in terms of uh, uh, sizes of crystals, whether they are pattern crystals, and then to think if one can make functional inorganic materials. What I will try to do is to put together this wish list. I'm not sure how far I will go through this list, but let's try to go one by one and see what one can do if we take really simplified lessons from biology. And let's begin with crystallographic orientation. Again, coming back to this system, to this brittle star skeleton, as I mentioned, this is one single crystal, and it's also optical element that is used for optical property to see through this skeleton. Calcite is birefringent material. If you orient it in any direction except for along the optical axis, you will have double image formation. So to use it as an optical material, you need to orient it, it's a single crystal, in such a way that the lenses are oriented, uh, that, that the axis of each lens is along C-axis direction of these crystals. And this is exactly what uh, the organisms do. Many other examples where it's not just crystals that are formed. All these crystals have very specific orientation and somehow nature knows how to control that. So again, coming back to calcite, as I mentioned, you do need to orient it in O01 orientation, at least for uh, the purposes to avoid uh, birefringence and double image formation. Very simple experiment, really for high school students or even before that, one can do it to show that although the shape is so convoluted, this is indeed one single crystal. How we can do it? We can take the skeletal elements, just the part of the uh, sea urchin, or in this case, uh, brittle star skeleton um, and use it as a template for crystal growth from it. So you epitaxially grow calcium carbonate, so you put calcium solution, you use either CO2 from environment or you add sodium bicarbonate to the system and now you are growing calcium carbonate but they, it's growing in registry with the underlying substrate. And what you would see that now these calcite rhombohedra growing on top they're all parallel to each other, showing that the underlying substrate is indeed single crystal, oriented exactly in the same way, and it's not a random amorphous um, or a combination of uh, different crystals oriented in space. So what would be the lessons that we can learn that 
nature can give us. And again, very simple lessons. And the lesson is that at least when the crystals are highly controlled in their orientation, it happens through stereochemical recognition at the organic-inorganic interface. So crystals, although in most cases would grow in defined microenvironment, there is also um, spe specialized proteins, and uh, many of them, in particular in the case of calcite, would be rich in negatively charged groups. They would be um, rich in aspartic acid, in glutamic acid, in serin, in threonine, uh, um, and these surfaces are the ones that control nucleation of these crystals. So what can we do to uh, try that and try to replicate the ability to control crystal orientation? Now we can, of course, extract proteins from <coughs> biological systems. However, um, these proteins do a lot of other things, and it's not necessarily that it would be easy to, um, to, uh, to keep the function and keep the ability to uh, control crystal orientation. And also, I don't want to extract proteins from uh, these systems. I want to design a simpler uh, system that has the same capability. And a very good approach to that is self-assembled monolayers. So one can build self-assembled monolayers, for example, on gold, of thyle, of alkyl thiols. They self-assemble within seconds on the surface. They pack nicely, and you have ability to change many things. For example, they can form a crystalline array where I know exactly what is the structure of my organic substrate, as opposed to doing it with uh, biological molecules. And I can functionalize it with moieties that are reasonable. And in this particular case, let's just uh, take those that are so common in biological crystal formation carboxylate groups, um, OH groups, sulfonate groups. We know they're always present when calcium carbonate is forming in natural systems. And if we do that, let's take a look at the orientations of calcite crystals that can grow on these self-assembled monolayers. What is shown here is self-assembled monolayer on a thiol long-chain alkyl uh, uh, thiol on gold that is functionalized, terminated with carboxylic acid. This one is terminated with hydroxyl group. This one is terminated with sulfonate group. And what is immediately interesting is that the crystals that grow on these surfaces nucleate from completely different planes. But the same nucleating plane within each system. So for example, all these crystals, they move uh, these crystals, they can rotate within the XY plane, but they all nucleate from, in this particular case, 015 uh, plane of calcite. I just use the same substrate, but terminated with OH group, they all grow from 104 plane, I terminated with sulfonate group, they all grow from 1012 plane. Hmm. If we look at the calcite structure, none of these nucleating planes have any interesting features in them. Just to look at uh, 104 is cleavage plane, kind of 
easy plane to consider, but not 1 or 12, not minus 1 or 5, which is a 1, 5 plane that we see there. Let's go further and I will discuss what is happening in this system. If I now change the substrate from gold to silver, and now I use the same self-assembled monolayers, but now my substrate is instead of gold, silver. So it's the same um, SAM is forming on the surface, but the unit cell for these crystallized self-assembled monolayers is now different. And for silver, it's a little bit smaller than for gold. But the functional groups are again use uh, the same. Again, all the crystals within each of these um, cases would have a preferred nucleating plane. Here's 012, 103, 107, and they all crystallize within each system from the specific crystallographic plane. Again, if we look at what is happening, except for 012 plane, which is really easy to justify. Honestly, it's the only one that is easy to justify. The others pretty much make no sense. If we think about epitaxy, if we think about the ability to um, translate information from one structure to another, crystal growers generally have um, seed crystal that dictates the unit cell to the crystals that you grow on top. But we do not see this registry in this, in this case. And in particular, if we look at, this is self-assembled monolayers on gold, these are self-assembled monolayers on silver, these are crystal planes from which they all nucleate, then it's obvious that it's not epitaxial if it would be epitaxial, that irrespective of the functional group, because the uh, self-assembled monolayers on gold would have exactly the same unit cell, all these are supposed to give you the same orientation of crystals. But it's also not the functional group alone that dictates that, because if it's the functional group that controls it, then um, the same functional group on two different surfaces, whether it's gold or silver, who cares? It's deep. In, in this surface is supposed to give you the same orientation, and it doesn't. So if we look at the um, situation, and let's uh, talk about actually my expectation when I started this work. I expected a completely different nucleating plane. I expected it would be oriented growth, but a surface that actually doesn't happen in any of these systems. Why? Why I was so wrong in what I expected? So what I'm showing here is in yellow, um, it's packing of uh, alkyl chains in self-assembled monolayer on gold. So they form this hexagonal array with a unit cell of five angstrom. Now, if I now look at the calcium carbonate structure, then in one plane, and I'll show you uh, the O1 plane again, O1 plane in hexagonal rhombohedron is also a uh, hexagonal array. And in black now, I'm showing calcium ions in this O1 plane of calcite, and it's exactly the same unit cell. It's a dream for 
crystal growers. You have an epitaxial template and what you want to grow has a perfect match uh, between the substrate and what you want to grow. It's even more than that. So if I use carboxylic acid terminated surface, which is negatively charged, and I'm growing calcite surface uh, that is composed of layers of calcium and layers of carbonate, but layers of ca calcium are positively charged, you are supposed to have also columbic interactions that has to grow in O01 orientation, but it didn't. And instead, <coughs> if I put now um, in black again, the positions of calciums, calcium atoms in calcite in registry with the underlying substrate, there is no registry. And the same with, with to, uh, for silver. But if I now build it in a little bit different way, if I look on gold, here is self-assembled monolayer, and we know that the functional groups in self-assembled monolayer are actually oriented in 3D space. If I now on top of that put calcite nucleated from the face that we know from X-ray studies, what is the orientation of these crystals, I can do the same for, for silver, for any of these surfaces, what we see that the orientation of a carboxylic group in the self-assembled monolayer is exactly the same as the orientation of the carbonate plane in calcite crystal. It's this orientation that is translated through the interface. So, by just simply changing the angle in the system, which you immediately induce nucleation of the same crystal in a different orientation. But still, let's try to think how to prove it even better than that. Let's remember that self-assembled monolayers of gold on, on gold uh, surface, they have a tilt angle of these thiol, uh, alkyl thiol chains. In particular, it's about 30 degrees tilt angle on gold. What that means is that depending on the parity of the carbon chain, whether you have odd number of CH2 groups or even number of CH2 group, that top group would have a different orientation on the, on the interface. So let's now compare instead of gold to silver, let's compare gold to gold, same functional group, but just odd and even effect in these structures. And then if this is true, that it's orientation of the functional group that translates through the interface, then in fact, if I just change by one CH2 group length of the um, alkyl chain, I'm supposed to see completely different orientation of nucleating crystals. And in fact, this is what we've seen. This is on um, nucleating plane in, in one case, a completely very unusual nucle nucleating plane in the moment you just change parity of the chain. But again and again, this is the same orientation that the functional group would have and uh, translated into the interface. So if we think about molecular modeling of this system, indeed, you would see that odd and even effect would have different probability and different nucleation density, different energetics of the interfaces that now inorganic crystals are following on this organic monolayer. In some ways, just in simplest way, what we can say 
And let me just jump for more general. Um, I think I do have it. Uh, one can think about this system that the crystal growing on top of self-assembled monolayer, and if this is uh, the crystal periodicity in your crystal, it considers, it really thinks about the monolayer as a surrogate um, crystal layer for its own structure, because this has exactly the same structure as the growing crystal. It doesn't have to be calcite. As I said, I use calcite as an example, but here's another example of using this to control orientation of uh, semiconductor crystals, anthracene, for example. In this case, I would choose self-assembled monolayer with character that is similar to the crystals that I want to grow. For calcite, it was carboxylic acid terminated. In this case, it would be phenyl groups in your self-assembled monolayer. And then you can grow uh, crystals that would now follow the orientation of the underlying substrate. So very generally, again, what one can say is that if you look at the crystal structure and you look at the interfacial structure, there is a registry here, and it's this orientation that controls the crystal growth. Now, epitaxy didn't affect anything. It didn't affect the nucleating plane, but it's in fact the wrong thing to say that changes in the unit cell of the underlying substrate is not important. It is not important in, in determining the nucleating plane, but there is something else where the unit cell of your self-assembled monolay in this particular case um, affects your crystal growth. And it's an interesting effect. For example, if I look at the, uh, again, calcium ions, uh, gold is shown now in white in this case, carboxylic acid, um, uh, and calcium ions in the structures that we form. And we know there is no registry crystallographical, uh, registry um, in the unit cell and the epitaxial registry. So it means there is strain in the crystal. In particular, if the crystal would grow with no strain whatsoever from the same nucleating plane, this is the shape that is supposed to be seen in the system. What we see is these elongated shapes. And what is interesting, that these elongated shapes and this shortening of the uh, crystal size in this direction corresponds to the direction in the lattice where the mismatch is the highest. So the outcome of that is that the substrate controls crystal orientation, but mismatch in your substrate controls the deformation of crystal shapes that you, uh, that you grow, such that in the directions where there is match, and actually in one direction there is match, it's only on the other direction there is no match, the crystals will grow undisturbed on the surface. But where they have to overcome the strain, interfacial strain, they, uh, the uh, growth rate in this direction is reduced. And of course we can calculate it and um, and then predict what is the lattice mismatch and how this lattice mismatch controls the shape of the crystals that would grow on the surface. And in the simplest way, if, even without complex um, calculations, one can think about it in, in terms of very similar to thinking about wetting phenomena. My crystal 
can wet the surface in one direction, but it's phobic in the other direction. So its growth rate would be different, and therefore shape of the crystal would be uh, controlled, and the growth rate in these directions would be affected by that. Here's uh, just simple example from some of the substrate that we, uh, that we looked at. Here's crystals that actually were now designed to grow in O1 orientation, because now I know what to do for that. I need just to have a functional group that is oriented in O1 direction. And in cases when there is almost no mismatch, the crystals are spreading on the surface. So they're growing along C-axis direction in this case. And exactly the same crystallographic direction, also along threefold axis, but these crystals are growing on a substrate that gives you a huge mismatch. So they want to leave the substrate immediately. This is hydrophobic case. And orientation is prescribed where the shape of the crystal is very different. Oh, let me just postpone. Wants to. Okay, so let me jump, ooh, very little. Uh, you know what, I will very fast cover one or two other topics and stop at that. So let's talk about morphology and crystal sizes. And again, very simple lesson from nature is that most of these crystals in nature grow in the presence of growth additives that affect crystal growth. Um, they are not necessarily junk that is out there, sometimes they have function, but if you have proteins or ions present in crystallization environment, if these guys interact with growing crystals, they affect their ability to grow. In particular, if we think about um, a certain crystal that has a certain growth rate in one direction and another growth, uh, growth rate in another direction, and it forms a certain shape of the crystal if it's undisturbed. But if now I would have an additive that is specific only to one crystal plane, it wants to absorb on crystal plane B but not A, then the direction, this direction would be undisturbed, but the growth rate in this direction will slow down. So what happens then that as this crystal will grow and collect in yellow the additive, it would shorten and shorten in this direction and change the shape completely. Very good example from some, some of the studies with proteins, actually. E, this is a regular calcite crystal. The moment you extract proteins from sea urchin spines that grow in C-axis direction, same calcite crystal is now elongated, just like sea urchin spine, in C-axis direction. If I extract proteins from uh, mollusk prisms that are flattened in C-axis direction, you get the cal calcite crystal that flattens in C-axis direction and begins to form a, a one plane. But one can take it much further than that. Let me just skip that. Get another example. Uh, there is also sponges that make their skeleton out of calcite. And this beautiful sponge spicule makes a skeleton of these calcareous sponges. So this beautiful Mercedes-Benz structure is one single crystal. They have the same X-ray, 
And if I extract proteins that exist, that exist within these uh, elements, and I just simply use them as additives for calcite growth, depending on the concentration that I use, I can change the shape of the growing crystal because the extract would selectively interact with the crystals in some directions, but not others, by inhibiting some directions and promoting growth in other directions. And in fact, this guy is now very similar in shape to the regular inorganic crystal. Let me um, add just one feature, for today at least, is that there are some interesting additional properties that come from um, the fact that you have oriented crystals and that you have additives that interact with these crystals. Now, if we think about fracture, and as I mentioned, calcite is used in nature as structural material, but it's a very poor material on its own. So if we think about uh, the fracture of glassy fracture, so if you have glass, it's amorphous material, so it has this conchoidal fracture. And of course, crystalline materials, um, it's these brittle crystalline materials would break along crystallographic planes, and this is what happens with pure calcite, showing every time one or four facets. This is biogenic calcite crystal, and its um, cleavage planes do not exist. Do, they don't show. They actually have conchoidal fracture very similar to amorphous materials. So what happens then is that let's remember that these proteins, in some cases, certainly in, in crystalline biological elements, they are oriented at an angle to the cleavage planes of calcite. What that means is that, um, of course, we can measure it if we just look at the force displacement diagram of the force using force and what is the displacement in pure calcite by indentation, you could see that it's uh, you look in the fracture toughness as the area under the curve. In synthetic crystals, you get at least one order of magnitude improvement of in fracture toughness. If you go to biological crystals, it's another order of magnitude of improvement. And it's simply due to the fact that if you have additives in solution, especially polymers, that are oriented at an angle to the cleavage planes, they actually create a crack-stopping mechanism such that the cracks that now propagate and again propagate along one or four facets meet the polymer and deviate from the regular crack propagation style and in this way show something similar to conchoidal fracture but even more importantly improving by two orders of magnitude fracture toughness of these crystals. So with that I would actually try to take some questions rather than to go to yet another topic of, of how to make these crystals pattern. I will probably cover it in the ne next lecture. And uh, let me ask you if you have any questions and I will be very happy to answer them. Introduction to the series of lectures. So, let me ask, do we have any questions? 
was not take, they, they, they had a certain orientation along the normal, but the other orientation was not fixed, right? That's correct. That, that Absolutely. Uh, is it somehow related to the field of the molecules, of the female molecules on the surface, or what, what determines this orientation of the crystal? Very good question. Uh, question. So in XY plane, if yeah. I would use just um, evaporated gold on the surface, so it's gold 111, but it's composed of small domains of gold islands that are oriented differently in space. So each of these islands would give you the same, orient the same plane, so the vector perpendicular to the plane is the same. But within X1 plane, it's a polycrystalline uh, gold substrate, and therefore uh, the crystals rotate within this plane. However, there is a way to solve that if you really want all of them to nucleate from the same um, substrate, from the same nucleating plane. One thing, which is not enough yet, is to use single crystalline gold substrate, um, which solves it somewhat, but not fully, because even in single crystalline gold substrate, it's degenerate, it's six-fold symmetry. So you would, and the tilt of the, the tilt is very specific, but there are six tilt uh, orientations that exist, and therefore they will control six um, orientations in 3D space for these crystals. But even that can be overcome further if you would take, um, if you brush your self-assembled monolayers so that um, now it's a si on single crystalline gold, now out of these six, the monolayers would, uh, would have the tendency to be um, oriented in, in one direction out of six. And that would be the orientation when the crystal would all uh, adopt and uh, orient the same way. Thank you very much. I um, hope that I will cover it today, but I wasn't able, so I'll, I'll go to that in the next lecture. So the role of compartments, the role of, of uh, not only domains of these highly acidic proteins that actually, I've so far, I only mimicked these highly acidic proteins that control nucleation events, but the substrate itself, whether it's a cell wall or a membrane, has yet another effect. And in particular, the effect is the effect of microenvironment and the local um, calcium fluxes that exist in this system. And uh, it doesn't affect nucleation, um, it doesn't affect the orientation of crystals, which I covered so far, but it does affect crystal shapes as it's related to, uh, to I just shown that uh, it would just the crystal would take a different shape, the same orientation but different shape, and it will specifically control where these crystals would nucleate as a function of local calcium channels and then as a function of confined environment that now imposes other uh, problems or you know, other, not necessarily problems, but other ways to control sizes, shapes, and features uh, of crystallization event.
great, great talk. Uh, I wondered with the bio crystals, um, on the same scale, the proteins will be an awful lot larger than that. And, and with your self-assembled layers, it looks like the crystal slightly distorts the underlying SAM surfaces. So, so with, with the question with the proteins, do you, do you have any sense of what structures the proteins have got inside these crystals and how that relates to the structures they had before a crystal formed? Oh, that's a very good question. So I skipped through that and I would love to discuss it in more detail. So we measured these crystals in terms of their imperfections, where imperfections are now these proteins, right? Um, and looking on coherence lengths uh, in different crystallographic directions that would tell you how large is the perfect domain in, in different orientations and relate it to positions of these proteins, size of the proteins that is occupied within the crystal. And what we see is that um, the, the positions of these proteins are very well defined. The planes to which they attach is very, very uh, well defined. And they have a tendency to adopt uh, beta sheet conformations uh, by, let's remember these proteins are highly negatively charged. Um, you have calcium carbonate. Uh, these proteins have carboxylic acid group. There's calcium in, in the crystal structure. They have a tendency to spread on these structures in somewhat trying to repeat the periodicity that crystal, crystal now imposes on them. And there's very nice rela relationship between uh, these proteins that find their way. There is also systems where proteins find their way on the cleavage planes, and then the material becomes even more brittle than before. So depending on which protein we, talk, uh, we, we discuss, or which polymer we discuss, it will interact with a completely different uh, orientation and uh, uh, directions in the crystal and shape the crystal and its mechanical properties uh, in the uh, corresponding way. Okay, with that in mind, I'd like to draw it to a close. I will just mention that uh, Professor Eisenberg has kindly given permission for these lectures to be recorded, and details of where they will be placed in the podcast on the website will occur in due course, but I think that will be the start of a fantastic repository of such lectures uh, going forward from time. But for now, I hope that's whet your appetite. I invite you all back on Tuesday at 11.15 in the same venue for lecture two of this series. With that, let's thank you and a warm welcome.